Well, this morning we come to the fifth installment in our, our series on the five solas of the Reformation. You've heard those repeated again and again um, here and probably in other places as we have recently celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in celebrating the nailing of the 95 Thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg. So this morning we're going to take up the final installment of that, Solo, Soli Deo Gloria, to, the, to God alone be the glory. I hope by now you have begun to grasp some of the significance of these five scriptural truths on which the Reformation, in a sense, was built, and how these truths stood like pillars against the errors of the church of that day. They were essential in, in bringing the church back to where it needed to be, to drawing everything from God's Word alone, to restoring it to teaching the scriptural basis of salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and restoring the focus upon the glory and majesty of God alone. It stood against the man-centeredness of the church in that age and said, No, all glory in heaven and upon earth belongs to God alone. B.B. Warfield summarized the theology of the Reformation as being an apprehension of God in majesty. I think we need that again. In the man-centered age in, we live, in which we live today, we need a fresh apprehension of God in majesty. For our text this morning, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. and We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 for our primary text. But before we read either of those, let us pause and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the proclamation of His holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Lord God, your ways and your works are perfect, and your word is without error. And we thank you for it, and that it is a rock that we can hold on to in this age in which we live. Give us grace now, Lord, as we look to it and as we sit under its authority. May it speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning. As it is inspired, as it is God-breathed and brought to us by the Holy Spirit, may the Holy Spirit enlighten our hearts to receive it this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, only reading one verse there. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then please turn to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There are a few passages, and, and maybe I should say more than a few passages in Scripture, that 
are so rich and so deep that I almost fear to preach them. And this passage that is before us this morning is certainly one of those. But it's also a passage that is very dear to me in that in, in the mid-1990s, in fact, in 1996, God led us to a fresh and new understanding of His Word and His sovereignty. For up until that point, even though I was a believer, even though I was a Christian, I somehow thought that I had somehow participated with God in my salvation. I thought that there was something good in me that allowed me to respond to the gospel. And I began to realize that God's glory and His sovereignty is so big and so amazing... And I was so sinful outside of Christ that there was nothing that I could do to earn my salvation. It was all of grace. It was all of God. And so this led me to awe and wonder that God would be so merciful in choosing me. In the church that we um, had just started attending, our pastor's wife would set music, uh, scripture to music. And this was a song that we sang, what I, had, what I just read. And so just like the Apostle Paul seemed to break out in this doxology, this glorious exaltation of God's majesty and glory and His knowledge that he could not completely understand, I was able to, in a small way, join in that praise and doxology as we would sing this text. This text shows us that All glory in heaven and upon earth belongs to God alone. And therefore, we must give Him glory. I want us to see this under three headings that I think are clear in this text. I want us to see first the incomprehensible knowledge of God. Secondly, I want us to see the absolute sovereignty of God. And thirdly, these two things should lead us to faithfully uphold and guard the unaccompanied glory of God. Of God. The first thing we notice in this text is that God's knowledge is incomprehensible. After having spent the first eight chapters of Romans showing man's great need and the great salvation that is available in Jesus Christ, Paul then takes chapter 9 to see, show us that God is completely justified in choosing whom he will. And he even answers our objections that we will probably have to say, wait a minute. Why would God choose some and not others? And he shows us that it is all of mercy. It is all of God's mercy that any of us are saved. That he elects any of us to salvation. Paul then takes chapters 10 and 11 and shows that it's not just for the Jew, but it's also for the Gentile. And then here at the close of chapter 11, he just breaks out in this doxology. He just breaks out and saying... Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We can't plumb these depths. And he's just exalting in God and praising God for the great salvation that is his, that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's almost, it's similar to what Augustine said as he considered and pondered the Trinity. He said, I see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. I can ponder it, but I can't get to the bottom of it. Paul has explored the depth of the mercy and graces of God, and he's not seen the bottom. So words seem to fail him as he breaks out in praise. The riches that he speaks of in this text are the riches of the mercy and grace in God, providing the way of salvation for anyone, especially the Gentiles. 
the knowledge of God that he speaks of, it's a complete knowledge. We speak of God as being omniscient, as being all-knowing. Unlike us, God's knowledge is complete and exhaustive. There is no limit to his knowledge. The most learned among us are typically those who study a very narrow field in great depth. And someone that maybe has plumbed to the depths in more than one area is beyond what we consider normal even. They are what we might even consider a genius. However, God's knowledge is still different from that person's in that God knows everything about everything. He knows all that there is to know about every detail of every situation and circumstance. He knows what we cannot know. He knows everything about things that have never yet been discovered and may never yet be discovered to man. And not only is God's knowledge infinite, His wisdom is as well. John Murray says that God's wisdom is the arrangement and adaptation of all things to the fulfillment of His holy designs. In other words, the working out of His will and purposes. We think of wisdom in, in, as, as we consider wisdom. Maybe it's in the book of Proverbs. We think of wisdom as being the skill in the art of godly wisdom. Or the proper use of knowledge to a good and godly end, we could say. But the wisdom of God pertains to the perfect accomplishment of His perfect and holy will. God knows how to achieve all the purposes for His own glory and our good. Just imagine, if you will, for a moment, all the circumstances God had to bring together to orchestrate your salvation. How did God bring that all together? You may see only a portion of that. But God, in His wisdom, His infinite knowledge and wisdom, was working that out to draw you to Himself. We see also in verse 33 that God's decrees are inscrutable. I've taken that word decrees to to kind of encapsulate both of the scriptural terms from our text of judgment and ways. God's decrees are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, a judgment is a pronouncement or a decision. If you think about a judge who would, would hand down a verdict of guilt or innocence on an individual that may be accused, um, it could be a decision by a court official or, or a public official. God's judgments are His pronouncements. They are extensions of His will and purposes. Paul says that these judgments are unsearchable. To be unsearchable is to be impossible to fully investigate, no matter how great the effort. Elusive, going beyond all human ability to locate. We can see what God does because we see it worked out before us, but we don't know all of God's ways. We don't know all of His judgments. We don't understand all of His ways. And the apostle goes on and says that, that his ways are inscrutable. And that's a word that we don't use a lot. We don't hear a lot. But it means similar to unsearchable. It means impossible to track. Unable to fully comprehend. When the Bible talks about a man's ways, it, it's talking more about the physical path that he would walk. 
but it's, it's all aspects of his living. And God's ways refers to all aspects of his actions and decisions. All of his dealings with men and the outworking of his decretive will. And those things are beyond our comprehension. We can only understand and see a portion of that. God spoke through his prophet Isaiah and says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just as we cannot, we can only understand a portion of what's God, what God is doing. There are aspects of God's will and purposes that he has not revealed to us, that we know nothing about. Even those things of which we have some degree of knowledge, we must concede that we know only a portion. We cannot trace or fully comprehend God's ways. A number of years ago, my wife and I went to an art gallery in the tiny town of Lindsberg, Kansas. And Lindsberg, Kansas is a Swedish community, and this art gallery featured the work of Birger Sanzen, who was an artist... And I remember walking into a room of this art gallery, and there was a large painting. And we walked up to it, and we, I, I, as I remember, we were pretty close to it. And then we started observing this painting and, and trying to appreciate it. And the paint was so thick on the canvas. And the brush that the artist used was so wide and, and thick. And I just wondered, what, what has this artist done? Because it just it almost looks like the paint is globbed upon the canvas and these heavy brush strokes. And so I just, I was baffled by this. Well, we stepped on, we viewed some more pieces of art, and we went around the, to the other side of the room, and we looked back on that painting, and it was this beautiful painting, this vibrant colors of the sun upon rocks, as I recall. And it was just this beautiful painting that as we stepped back and looked at it, we could appreciate it so much more. And I think that is what God is doing in our lives sometimes. When we can only see a portion of it, His ways are beyond our understanding. We do not see the whole picture. What a glorious thing it is going to be in heaven when we see the grand painting. And we may even perhaps look at a portion of it and think, oh, that was hard, you know. But we see the whole picture. We see what God is doing, painting that glorious painting. God's ways are inscrutable. They are past finding out. This text points us not only to the infinite and incomprehensible knowledge of God, but also to His sovereignty over all things. What a great reminder of his sovereignty and providence in the passage that was just read before the message. Where Nebuchadnezzar, after he had been restored from a period of humiliation, bowed to the king of kings, the true kings, and said, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He said, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here was probably the greatest king on the earth at that time, bowing to the true king of all kings and kingdoms. And here in our text, Paul asks us three rhetorical questions. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? And we could answer, no one. Who has been his counselor? No one. 
Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. God is a debtor to none. These words harken back to Isaiah who says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or who has, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Of course, once again, we have to answer, no one. God is the sovereign one, the eternal God, the self-existent one who has done all of these things. We're also drawn to the life of Job. As verse 36 is a quote from Job 11, 41, 11. Remember, Job was a man of exemplary character and yet a man who suffered greatly. <clears throat> Job maintains his innocence and in a sense complains to God, especially towards the end of the book as he um, wonders what God is, is doing. And what's God's answer to him? He simply says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? He says in 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay, repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is simply saying, I am God. I am the creator and you are the creation. And I am sovereign and you have to trust in me. Notice with me in verse 36 that all things are of him. God is the source of all things. From him are all things, our text says. God has made all things for his own glory. God, the uncreated, has brought matter into existence out of nothing. He is the one eternal spirit has created matter and materials that exist in space and time. John said of Jesus Christ... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The triune God is the source of all things. We see in our text that he's also the sustainer of all things. Through him are all things, it says. God sustains this creation through works of creation and providence. He preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. Colossians 1 tells us again of, of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God didn't just create the world and then set it on a shelf like a divine clockmaker for it to run its course. No, he is actively involved in the events of this world, orchestrating every detail according to his divine plan. Hebrews tells us that he's holding everything together by the in place by the word of his power. Matthew tells us that a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the Father's notice. And Ephesians tells us that those who are in Christ have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is orchestrating all events in this world. He is not only the creator not only the source of all things and the sustainer, but God is the goal of all things. The Westminster Divines wisely said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, but they could have also said that the chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy Himself forever. Why did God create the world? For His own glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. 
whom I formed and made. God has made everything and everyone for his glory. And that's, that's so countercultural to this man-centered world that we live in that tells us to use everything, including God, for our own advancement. But it's not about us. This life is not about us. It's about God and his glory. Why did God in his mercy choose to redeem sinful man? Ephesians 1 tells us clearly that it's for the praise of his glory and grace. God reveals himself in and through his creation. But the ultimate end of his creation is for his own glory. Psalm 104 speaks of creation and the things that God created, the mountains and the birds and the trees, tells us that God is the sustainer and the creator of them all. Then in verse 31 of Psalm 104, the author pauses and says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. God rejoices in His creation. The book of Job tells us that the angels shouted for joy at the creation. Think about all the parts of creation that only God can observe. John Piper pointed this out in one of his books, and he quoted from a poem by Thomas Gray, where one of the stanzas says this, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. But does that desert flower really waste its sweetness if no one is there to observe it or take in the glory of its, of its smell and of its beauty? No, That flower, even if man never sets eyes on it, was created for God's glory. God delights in this and every other part of his creation. Even if man can never set eyes on such a flower, God is glorified and rejoicing in his creation. Imagine all the creatures of the deep that went undiscovered for thousands of years and and many other species that maybe are yet to be discovered. Consider the intricate workings of the cell that man is just beginning to understand. Or the billions of stars that we, see, that we see and cannot see and the billions of galaxies beyond our own, all existing to bring glory to God. And then think about us. Think about us, saints, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. God's people, it says in Zephaniah, that He sings over us. What glory we bring to God. So how much should we seek to see ways To glorify Him. Now we might object to this teaching because in our minds, self-love and self-adoration is seen as a negative thing. Jonathan Edwards answers this objection by saying that desire for praise is sin only when it's rooted in unworthiness. Or as someone pointed out to me after the morning service, the theologian Joe Namath said, it ain't bragging if it's true. We know for God it's true that He is infinitely worthy. Praise to God is always right and just because God is right and just. He is good and He delights in being God. And that is as it should be because He is infinitely good and worthy. We've considered the incomprehensible knowledge of God and the absolute sovereignty of God. And we want to think about the unaccompanied glory of God. For the glory of God alone. I think we need to understand what God's glory is so that we can properly ascribe glory to Him. 
the glory of God is the essential aspects of his being. It's the display of his attributes, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his sovereignty. One has said that it's the outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. So let, let, me, let me break that down a little bit. He says that it's the outward radiance, that which is evident, that which is seen, that which can be observed of his beauty and greatness as it is seen in nature and actions. It's God's display of his power and authority. It's how he reveals himself. We see that God revealed himself in various ways in the Old Testament. When God gave Moses extended instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and then we read in Exodus how Moses worked those out and did what he was commanded. What happened when the tabernacle was completed? The glory of the Lord filled the house. We see that again in places like Chronicles and Kings and Ezekiel. The house of the Lord was filled with the glory of God. The glory of the Lord is the radiance or emanation of His holiness and His presence. We see that God's glory was most remarkably seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. John Piper has said that the glory of God is the all-defining, absolutely original standard of greatness and beauty. All created greatness and beauty comes from it and points to it. The glory of God. What I think we need to ask as we continue thinking about this is how might we glorify God and why must we glorify God? The second question is perhaps easier to answer and hopefully we've already answered it. But in case you drifted off in the middle there, let me recap. We praise God because He's the source of all things. Because He's the sustainer of all things and He's the goal of all things. All things was created, were created for His glory. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. In Him we live and move and have our being. He has made us for His glory. We cannot add to His glory... But yet we can seek to exalt his glory by giving God the praise that he deserves. Thomas Watson has said, Creatures below us and above us bring glory to God, and do we think that we can live rent-free? In other words, think about it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, The creatures in the depth of the sea declare the glory of God. Inanimate objects declare his glory. Angels sing his praise and his glory. We should as well. We must proclaim his glory. We glorify God by showing adoration and appreciation of Him. The psalmist tells us, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We glorify God when we set Him as the highest thing in our thoughts. We contemplate His greatness, His perfection, His holiness, His attributes. We glorify God by doing that, by reflecting upon who He is. We must see God as God and think properly about Him. And that takes time. It takes time to quiet our hearts and to reflect upon who God is. The hymn writer said, Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. Those are convicting words to me because I don't spend enough time in adoration and appreciation of the God of the universe.
I wonder how many of us could say that we consistently spend even a fraction of that hour each day in adoration of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We further glorify God by our love and obedience to Him. Children, if you've learned the Catechism for Young Children, you know that you glorify God by loving Him and doing what He commands. We are told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We exalt God and we proclaim His glory by our obedience. The problem is that sometimes obedience doesn't feel very glorious. Sometimes it's just hard to be obedient. And sometimes we fail. We fail because we love our sin too much. James says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So we need to ask God to give us grace to see sin as it truly is, as as God sees it. We need to see it as an offense against Him. And bow in humble subjection before the glory of God. And to look for Christ, look to Christ. He is the one who reveals the glory of God. He is the one who died, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can walk in newness of life. Now, the Puritans are known for many things, and thoroughness is certainly one of them. And Thomas Watson, in writing about the glory of God, offers a list of 17 ways that we can glorify God. I'm not going to give them all to you this morning, but I want to give you just a few. He points out that we aim at God's glory when we prefer God's glory above other things. Is God's glory something that is consistently on your mind? Do you seek to glorify God in every circumstance that God places before you? We also glorify God by an honest confession of sin. A humble confession exalts God and glorifies Him. Luther's first of the 95 theses that he nailed to the door of that church said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent... He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. End of quote. We glorify God by being quick to recognize our sin and repent and striving to live a life of increasing godliness. We glorify God by praising Him. Those who offer praise and thanksgiving bring glory to God. Jesus taught His disciples to pray that God's name would be hallowed. We promote God's glory by praising Him and encouraging others to do the same. We also promote God's glory when we are content that God's will should take place, though it may cross our own, our own will. And that's a hard thing to do. We seek contentment in every circumstances. I called my brother on the phone a couple days ago, and, and my dad had told me he was going through some trials. I asked him how he was doing, and he said, Terrible. And I said, well, how, how bad are you? What's going on? Well, he told me that they'd had a car accident and a couple other cars had died, like two blown head gaskets in a couple weeks. Their house had flooded. Um, he had suffered a major setback with his business. And I just, I got off the phone. And my brother's a believer. And, and I think he, he, would, he would say he wants to glorify God in these circumstances. And I thought, how does someone in that situation glorify God? I know many of you have suffered trials and setbacks. You have had 
huge flooded homes, huge flood that has affected you. How do we glorify God in those circumstances? Well, think about the Apostle Paul. He was one who suffered many setbacks. He, he even lists those out for us in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I was given 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. I've been stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea for a night and a day, facing toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, danger, all this in addition to pressure from various churches. He had a list of trials. Yet in all this, Paul says in Philippians 4, that he has learned contentment in every circumstance and every trial. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul recounts his struggle with his his famous thorn in the flesh, and he says that God reminded him in these words, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul actually then says he can boast in his weakness. He saw his weaknesses and setbacks as an opportunity for God's glory to shine forth. And that's hard. But that's what we need to do, is we need to see that God is working even in our trials to glorify himself. How do we do that? I think, first of all, we have to have a big view of God. We must see God in all his glory and splendor and majesty. See him as the sovereign king that's working all things, whose ways are beyond our comprehension, whose ways and judgments are inscrutable. Secondly, we must trust his goodness. God is good and is working all things for our good, Romans 8.28 says. Even when we cannot understand his ways, we are called to trust him. Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We must trust the goodness of God because, remember, we can only see a little portion of the picture. The hymn writer said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. And thirdly, we must look to Christ. Christ suffered the greatest injustice of all in that He took upon himself our sins. He endured the wrath of God for sins that were not his own, but ours. He is not just our example, but he is our Savior. Because of his sinless life and his sacrificial death for us, he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father and is making intercession for us. So pray to God in Jesus' name and know that God hears our prayers. In conclusion, I want to point you to that passage that we read from 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In short, how are we to glorify God? In every way and in every circumstance. In joy and in trial. At work and at play. When things are peaceful and harmonious in your home and when there's conflict abounding. When your kids are sleeping and when they're fighting. When you get the big promotion at work and when you get fired, we are told to live all of our life for God's glory. God has created us for his glory, so may the Lord give us grace to live every part of it for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
thank you, Lord, for your word. God, give us grace that we might glorify you and encourage others to do it. Hear our prayer and receive our praise and help us in every way and in every circumstance to seek to glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.